0: Praise the Lord. Let's turn over to Luke chapter 2. And this weekend I'm going to share a um, compilation of a number of different teachings that I have. I'm going to take bits and pieces and put them together and uh, teach them in a way that I hadn't taught this before. I think this is really going to be a blessing to you and help you. It will either make you mad or glad, one of the two. But I don't believe you'll be indifferent after this. We're going to be sharing a lot of things that will counter a tremendous amount of religious teaching today. Um, and I just want to encourage you that uh, I was talking to some people out here and they said that they were shocked at first. But after they thought about it, it began to make more sense and now they've adopted it. And uh, I really believe that there needs to be some major changes in the belief system that Christians have. If there... If If we don't need to change our doctrine, then um, we should be getting good results. But if the results we're getting aren't producing properly, then it's because we're believing wrong. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. So I know that there's a resistance to changing the way you think, but yet it's the way we think that has caused us to be the way we are. And I don't know very many Christians that don't feel like there's a lot of room for improvement in the way that we're receiving. And so I just want to encourage you not to reject this just because it's different, but to listen and let the Lord speak to you. And I think that this will wind up being a tremendous blessing to you. Amen? Luke chapter 2, this is uh, the announcement of the birth of Jesus to the shepherds. And I want to take these passages of Scripture and just use this to kind of jumpstart this whole teaching. I'm going to say a lot of things tonight. ...that I may not have time to explain, but then we will explain it as we go through this weekend. So I want to encourage you to come back and again remember to get these tapes that we're offering. In Luke chapter 2 and in verse um, 8, it says, "...and there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid." And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, good will towards men. Now this is a familiar passage of scripture and all too often we use this to create a mood. To get us into the Christmas spirit as such and we don't really think about what this says. And during Christmas time you'll hear this verse used often to say things like, you know, matter of fact, some of the translations translate this to say, that uh, in verse 14, instead of saying glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill towards man, some of the translations will say uh, peace towards men of goodwill or peace among men is what some of the translations will say. And this is the dominant interpretation of this. Most people think that the angels were proclaiming that there was going to be peace on earth and that this was going to stop Division and strife, and that Jesus was coming to bring peace among men, and yet that is not what this verse is saying. That is a total misapplication of that. And uh, let me just give you a couple of uh, scriptures on this. Over in Mark chapter, I mean Matthew chapter ten. If you'd take just a moment to turn over there, I want to show you Jesus' own words about this. In Matthew chapter ten. And in verse 34, look what Jesus said. He says, Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. Now, if any of you think that the angels were proclaiming that now that Jesus has come, there's going to be peace on earth among men, and that wars and division and strife is going to stop. Jesus, out of his own mouth, says, Don't think that I have come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. The next verse, verse 35 says, For I came to set a man at variance against his father, and the daughter against her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's foes shall be they of his own house. And he goes on and says some other things. But Jesus out of his own mouth said, I did not come to send peace on the earth. And then Jesus prophesied that one of the signs of the end times would be that people would say, Peace, peace, peace. And there is no peace. And he talks about one of the signs of the end time is that there is going to be increased war and division and strife and all of these kind of things. You cannot defend the position that Jesus came to bring peace among people. Now it is true that there is a benefit if you will receive Jesus into your heart. If you receive the Prince of Peace into your heart, then it does allow you to turn the other cheek it does allow you to operate in a different degree of love with people than you ever have before. And so I don't doubt that there has been a tremendous amount of peace among men that came as a byproduct of people receiving salvation. But that is not the message of the angels were singing. They weren't proclaiming peace among men. Jesus himself said that's not what he came to do. Rather, if you go back to Luke chapter 2 verse 14, you know what these angels were proclaiming? They were saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men from God. This is what they were proclaiming. And some people haven't fully appreciated this, but prior to the advent of the Lord Jesus Christ, there was war from God against man's sins. And since those sins were in us, there was wrath From God upon people because of the sin in their life. Now, many people haven't mentally separated this and really looked at it. They kind of run everything together. But in the Old Testament, there was a wrath and a judgment from God against people that is totally unjustified and wrong in the New Testament. Jesus ended the war between God and man, Jesus made a difference. And yet most people kind of run all of this together and they still think of God as being angry at our sins. They still think that there is war going on and that every time they sin, that somehow or another this is a new affront against God and that God is ticked off. And you will hear people use Old Testament scriptures about the wrath of God falling upon people. We teach this and I'm going to deal with these things in different ways this weekend. I'm going to hit a lot of these different issues. But when it comes to intercession, people today are preaching that God is angry, that He's dangling America over hell by a thin thread that is on fire and He's just about ready to turn us over to the devil People are proclaiming that God is the one who sent the hurricanes and the tsunamis and that God is going to cause cause other disasters. There were religious leaders that got up and proclaimed that God is the one that sent the terrorist attacks and this is the beginning of God's judgment on America. And they're still proclaiming that there is wrath from God towards men. And yet this is not the message of the New Testament. The, the angels, when they announced the birth of Jesus, they understood the gospel. They understood that Jesus came to redeem us from this, to pay our price for us and to stop God's wrath upon sin. And the New Testament church should be proclaiming to people that their sins are paid for, that God has already paid a price. And we ought to be telling people the good news. That's what the word gospel means, good news, actually too good to be true news. That you aren't getting what you deserve. That God isn't angry at you. That God loves you. That God wants to extend uh, all of His benefit, His blessings towards you. And yet as a whole, the church isn't preaching this. The church is still telling people that God is angry and that God is upset with them. And we wonder why people aren't beating down the doors to the church. It's the goodness of God that leads men to repentance. Romans chapter 2 verse 4. Now there is a justice to God and I'm going to be talking about these things in greater detail, but Jesus paid a price. Jesus totally changed the dealings of God with mankind and that's what these angels were singing about. Look over in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and here is the Apostle Paul making this same point and he's summarizing the ministry of Jesus talking about in verse 17 that if any man's in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things have passed away, behold, all things are become new, and all things are of God, who hath reconciled us. You know, I could spend a lot of time on this, but the word reconciled just real simply means to make friendly or to bring back into harmony. God is not upset with you. And I'm going to say some things here. I hesitate to say this because I know that uh, this is so contrary to our Christian culture that many of you may reject me and not listen to what else I've got to say. But I'm going to just throw this out there and hope the Holy Spirit bears witness and that you come back and give me a chance to explain it. But you know what? God's not only not mad at you as a Christian. Most Christians really struggle with that. But He's not mad at the unbelievers. God's not upset. God is not about to judge this nation. I used to actually preach that if God didn't judge America he'd have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah because I believe that America is as corrupt as Sodom and Gomorrah or very close to it. We're in that category. And I used to proclaim that, but now with the understanding that I've got, I believe that if God was to judge America, he'd have to apologize to Jesus. Jesus. Because Jesus has made a difference in the way God relates to mankind. And this is what the angels were praising God for. Glory to God in the highest. The war is over. The anger and the wrath of God has been atoned. It has been appeased. God's wrath was placed upon His Son. And God isn't angry at us anymore. And so He goes on to say in verse 18, "...and all things are of God who hath reconciled us to Himself by Jesus Christ." And hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. The Lord made us friendly. He brought us back into harmony with God. Not only believers, but all mankind. The debt has been paid. Now they have to receive it. They have to put faith to what the Lord has provided before it has its full effect. But God's wrath has been appeased. He is, God is reconciled to man. Man may not be reconciled to God. But God has been reconciled unto man. God's wrath is over. And it says that He not only did that, but He gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And let me just say this. I believe that the reason that Christianity isn't having a greater impact on the culture than what we are having today is because we aren't preaching this message I'll minister this sometime during this week. It says over in Romans chapter 1 verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it, the gospel, is the power of God unto salvation. And the word salvation there isn't limited to just forgiveness of sins. It's talking about healing, prosperity, deliverance in your emotions. Every part, everything that Jesus came to do, the power for it is released through the gospel, the good news, the nearly too good to be true news. And as a whole, the church isn't preaching nearly too good to be true news. They're telling people, you're going to go to hell. You're a sinner and God's angry. You know, it is true that we are sinners, or we were. It is true that sin separated from God, or did separate from God. But it is also true that God placed all of our punishment for our sins upon Jesus. God's wrath has been appeased. And that is, all of those things that I said isn't the gospel. It's not good news. It's especially not nearly too good to be true news. The gospel is talking about in spite of our sins and in spite of our relative unworthiness and our need and, and uh, it would have been justice for us to be punished. God placed that judgment upon Jesus and God's wrath has forever been satisfied. God is not angry with people. He has paid the price and all we got to do is receive that payment. Now that's the gospel. That's the good news and the church isn't primarily preaching that. The church is preaching, God's angry at you. You've sinned. Repent or else. Turn or burn. And because of that, people are not coming to the Lord. The power of the gospel is not in manifestation, and that's the reason that people are turning away from it today. We have gotten away from the truth of the gospel. And you know, I praise God for all these pastors that are here and that they're still sitting here. This is a miracle. And so I'm not against the church. I'm certainly for the church. But you know what? The reason we're meeting in a building like this is because, as a whole, the church isn't preaching this. And you've got to come out to a convention center and go outside the walls of the quote-unquote church because there's not very many churches preaching the gospel. I've been run out of town. I've been kicked off of radio stations and television stations and stuff for preaching that that God isn't angry anymore. This is the same thing that the angels were proclaiming. Glory to God in the highest. Peace on earth towards men. From God. God's not angry. There's peace. God's not angry at you. And yet people today somehow or another just love to let people know how angry God is, thinking that that is going to drive them away from hell. That's not the way that it works. And it says, He gave unto us this ministry of reconciliation. Verse 19, To wit, that means to know, or that is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto Himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us this word, of reconciliation. God was in Christ, not imputing. The word impute means to hold against, or it's actually an accounting term where, like if you go in and say, put that on my account... They write down what it was that you've gotten at the end of the month you have to pay up. It would be like using a credit card and yet it never got charged to your bill. You never got charged for it. That would be that they didn't impute it unto you. This says that God was in Christ not holding man's sins against them. Not putting their sins against them. God wasn't holding our sins against us. And that's the reason that Jesus was so radical. That's the reason that the scribes and the Pharisees and others came out against Him is because they had kept the people under their thumb and the way that they kept in power and kept influencing people was because they had the truth. And if you didn't come to their synagogue and if you didn't give your tithe and if you didn't do these things, then they held this wrath of God over your head. And you know, I hope that you'll forgive me for using this comparison, but many of you will probably understand what I'm saying here. But in a sense, it's like the mafia. You know how they come and and Guido comes and knocks on your door and and says, there's sure a lot of arson in this area. A lot of stores have been broken into. You know what? You've got a good chance of having your business burned. Somebody's going to steal or rob from you. But if you will pay me, we will keep that from happening to your store. And of course, the people that are robbing and burning are Guido. He's the one that's doing it. But you're paying him hush money. In other words, you know, if you will give to him, he, will, he won't burn your business. Well, in a sense, that's what... Churches are saying, God's angry at you, but if you will come to church, if you will pay your tithes, if you will read the Bible an hour a day, if you will do this, you can appease the wrath of God and keep God from sending your children into the hospital and destroying your marriage and doing things. In a large degree, that's what the church is preaching. It's like the mafia. They're saying that if you will pay up, if you will keep our list of things, God will keep off your case for one more week. And that's how they're trying to motivate people to serve God. This is saying that God was in Christ, not imputing men's sins unto them. Jesus came along telling people, God's not mad at you anymore. Your sins aren't a problem. Thank you, dearie. One person in here, you know what, to stand up and say that sin's not a problem with God. They'll stone you. People how could you say such a thing? You're making light of sin. You're, asking, you're acting as if there is nothing wrong with sin. That's not what I'm saying. A person who is sitting there saying, your sin is a big deal and God can't fellowship with you if you've got sin in your life and sin is terrible and how dare you encourage people to sin. First of all, I'm not encouraging anybody to sin. I'm not telling you to go sin. If you will stick with me through this weekend, I'm going to put this into perspective. And I, I tell you what, anybody who would take the things I'm saying and say, man, this is awesome. I love it. I love it. I love it. Now I can go live in sin. You need to get born again when we give an invitation right here. Because I guarantee you that is not right. Anybody. That Scripture says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 3, that every man that has this hope in him purifies himself even as he is pure. If you truly are born again and have the hope of being like Jesus, you are looking for a way to overcome sin, not to indulge it. So anybody who's taking what I'm saying and saying, I'm encouraging people to sin. You're either... just I'm going to be blunt with you because I've only got a short time with you, amen, and then I'm leaving. But you're either lying... Or you just totally misunderstood what I'm saying. Because that is not what I'm saying. I'm not encouraging you to sin. But when people say, you're making light of sin, and you're just telling people they can go live in sin. You know, my response to that is, you're making light of Jesus. I'm not saying that sin's not bad. Sin's terrible. But I'm saying that sin is not as big as Jesus. Jesus paid for our sins. The payment that Jesus paid... The payment that Jesus paid is infinitely greater than the sins of the entire world. One drop of Jesus' blood was more holy, it was more righteous, it was more pure than all of the impurity and the ungodliness of this entire world put together. And when Jesus died for our sins, it forever satisfied the wrath of God. Sin isn't the issue. And I'll say this again sometime this week, and I'm going to explain this in a little bit more detail. But you know what people go to hell for is not their sins. They go to hell because they rejected the payment for their sins a Savior. And when we're out there proclaiming, if you don't quit dipping and cussing and chewing and doing these kind of things, God won't accept you. You are imputing people's sins unto them. And you are demeaning ...and decreasing the value of Jesus' sacrifice... ...and you're saying that your sin is bigger and more important than Jesus' sacrifice. God was in Jesus, not imputing man's sins unto them. Sin isn't the issue. It's all a matter of what are people doing with Jesus. Are people making a commitment of their life to Jesus... Now, if a person doesn't receive Jesus, he's their payment for their sins. There is no other way unto the Father except through Jesus. And if a person doesn't accept Jesus, then this is just antiology. I don't know a scripture that says this specifically, but if they don't accept the payment for their sins then when they are rejected and cast into hell, not because of their sins, but because of rejecting Jesus, then I believe they are going to pay for those sins. And they will be held accountable for them. But the truth is, those sins have been paid for. Sin isn't really the issue. The issue is all about what are you going to do with Jesus. And if you have accepted Jesus, if you are born again, then you know what? Sin isn't an issue. God is not ticked off at you. God is not angry at you. He's not mad at you over your sin. God loves you, and if you could ever get over sin and focusing on sin and understand that God loves me, even though I don't deserve it. God's pleased with me, even though I'm not pleased with myself. If you ever got a picture of the price that Jesus paid for your sins, you would fall so in love with Him that the Bible says in Galatians 5, 6, that faith works by love. Your faith would go through the roof. You would wind up... The, the whole book of First John, if you were to read it from the proper mindset, is all talking about that if you love God, then keep the commandments. It's not saying keep the commandments to get God to love you, but it's saying that if you understood the love of God, you would keep the commandments. You would live holy. If you understood how much Jesus loved you, if you really heard the gospel and understood that your sin, all of your sins, the grossest, worst sin that you've ever done, whatever it is, it is all paid for and God isn't angry. If you ever understood the price that Jesus paid to reconcile you to God, you would fall so head over heels in love with God that you would serve God more accidentally than you ever have on purpose under fear and under dread, and you would wind up living a holier life, not an unholy life. And you would have a joy and a peace in your relationship that you've never had before. So this is what it's saying, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto Himself, not imputing our sins unto us, and He has committed unto us this word of reconciliation. This is the word that the church should be preaching. God's not in a bad mood. Amen. God's not angry. God loves you. We shouldn't be proclaiming that if America doesn't repent, God's going to judge us. The wrath of God is coming. That the terrorist attack, God killed 3,000 something people in the Twin Towers because of his wrath. It's not true. God's the one that destroyed all of these people in New Orleans and caused the hurricane stuff. It's not true. I guarantee you, there is coming a time that the Lord, this period of the church age and His grace is going to be over and the Bible proclaims in the book of Revelation that there is going to come a time. He says, all right, that's it. This is the end of the age. And those who've accepted me are going to be received into joy and into peace and stuff. But those that reject Him are going to suffer the wrath of God. And when the wrath of God is poured out in the book of Revelation, nobody's going to wonder about was this the wrath of God. They are going to know it was the wrath of God. It's going to make Hurricane Rita and Katrina look nothing in comparison. Nobody's going to be guessing and they aren't going to be debating, was this the wrath of God? They will know it. But right now the grace of God is extended towards people and we should be telling people that God loves you. We ought to be saying the same thing the angels did about glory to God in the highest. Peace on earth from God towards man. God's not angry at you. Isn't that good news? He goes on to say in verse twenty, Now we now then we are ambassadors for Christ. Did you know an ambassador doesn't go over and proclaim what he wants to? The ambassador has to be in touch with their country that they came from and they are a representative of the country they came from and they are supposed to represent like, for instance, the U.S. ambassador represents the president and the people of the United States. He isn't free to make up his own message. We are supposed to be representing God. We are supposed to be having the same ministry that Jesus did. And God in Jesus did not impute man's sins unto Him. He went and ate with publicans and sinners and harlots and people that the religious system had damned and condemned so much that they wouldn't have anything to do with God anymore. Those are the ones that Jesus uh, fellowshiped with and extended love towards. And we are His ambassador we are supposed to be ministering His message. We're supposed to be saying what He tells us to say. And this is what He did. And yet, sad to say, most of us today are not proclaiming that message. We have ta- we've adopted a religious system that has been entrenched for hundreds of years. And we're saying things about the anger and the wrath of God. Telling people that if they don't do this, God's not going to answer their prayer. God won't move if you aren't holy. And we are imputing man's sins unto them. And boy, Satan is using that to keep people beat down, discouraged. Did you know that most of you in here, again, this isn't a regular church service. You don't get any special credit for this. This isn't your nod to God crowd. This isn't your weekly debt and obligation. You know, if you're here tonight, it's because you're a fanatic or you were either brought here by a fanatic. Amen. So, this isn't your common crowd. You guys are fanatics. You're holy rollers. Or you're soon to be. Amen. <laughs> and you know what? Most of you in here believe in the supernatural power of God. If We, we got an email from a partner just two days ago that was thanking me that they had uh, been listening to me for four or five years. And they were just thanking me because this woman, her husband died two nights ago uh... during the middle of the night he had a blood clot or something and died and she said that man because i'd been listening to you i knew what to do and she just raised him from the dead and he got up and he went in and went to the restroom and came back to bed everything's fine and she was just praising god that she knew what to do and isn't that good most of you believe that most of you believe in miracles And if I, you know, if somebody came forward and they fell over dead, and if I said, all right, we're going to pray for them, and I believe God's going to raise them from the dead. Most of you believe that kind of stuff happens or you wouldn't be here on a Thursday night. Matter of fact, many of you would say, go for it, brother. You'd get up here. You'd want to see it. You would just be, you know, licking your chops thinking, oh, this is awesome, man. I'll have a great story to go out and tell everybody else. You know what? You would be excited until I said, all right, if you believe it, you come up here and pray for him. And then all of a sudden, many of you who just were really excited and you believe that God does miracles. But when I say you come pray for him, all of a sudden, instead of excitement and faith, fear hits you. You know why? Because... You don't doubt God's ability. What you are doubting is God's willingness to use His ability for you because you know you aren't worthy. And most, most of us believe God only moves in our life when we are worthy. We have tied God's ability to our worthiness, our goodness. And the moment you do that, Satan is going to defeat you because your own heart will condemn you and let you know that you don't deserve it. But see, that's not the message. God, that's not the message that Jesus brought. He was not imputing man's sins unto them. And He told us to preach a message that tells people that the warfare is over, the battle is over. God's not mad anymore. It doesn't matter. Now that doesn't mean that it's just all up to God because if it was all up to God, I guarantee you people would receive because God is a good God and God has nothing but good things in store for you. But you have to believe to receive. You don't have to be holy. You don't have to do everything right, but you do have to believe. And you know what? If you feel so unworthy and if you feel that you have messed up so badly that God doesn't love you, that's unbelief. That is not the message of the gospel. And that very thing is what keeps your faith from working. Again, I refer back to that scripture in Galatians chapter 5, verse 6. Faith works by love. If you understood how much God loved you, if you knew that God carries your picture in His wallet, that God isn't upset with you, that God isn't mad, He's not ticked off, God is not disappointed, He's not ashamed of you, He's proud of you. If you could understand that, your faith would go through the roof. You would think any God who could love me, that could overlook all the stupid things that I've done, what an awesome God. Man, if He'll do that, He'll do anything. Amen. Look over in Isaiah chapter 40. Let me just finish. Here, let me finish reading 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says in verse 20, Now then we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. That's what I'm wanting to do this this weekend is to help you to become reconciled to God. God has reconciled Himself unto you. He has forgiven your sins. He has taken those things away. God is not angry at you. God now is friendly and harmonized with you. Will you... Reconcile yourself to God. Will you now uh, accept what God has said? This is the message that we're supposed to be doing. We're praying you in Christ's stead, be you reconciled to God. For he hath made him, talking about God the Father, made Jesus who knew no sin, or excuse me, he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. This is another thing I'm going to develop and talk about more during this week. But the Lord didn't just ignore your sins. He didn't just somehow or another say, all right, I'm not going to hold their sins against them. He paid for your sins. Your sins are paid for through the Lord Jesus. And He not only took your sins away, but then He made you the righteousness of God. You didn't just have your sins forgiven, but you had your sins forgiven. Jesus took your sin into Himself and suffered for your sins on the tree. And He paid for your sins. And then Jesus gave you His righteousness. He took our sins, gave us His righteousness, and you aren't only forgiven... You aren't just an old sinner who's been saved by grace, but you were an old sinner. You got saved by grace and now you are the righteousness of God. God sees you righteous, holy, and pure. He is not angry at you. It's not a matter of Him just turning the other way and somehow or another overlooking your sins. They are paid for. They are gone. Your sins have been obliterated. Your sins have been cast, it says over in Psalms 103, into the sea of forgetfulness. He has forgotten it. As far as the east is from the west, so far has God removed your transgressions from you. God is not looking at your sins. God isn't dealing with you based the way you deal with yourself. And again, I've got a lot of things to share that help you to understand that. But I'm just painting a picture here tonight. That you know what? God is not angry at you. You may have trouble understanding this and receiving it, but I'm going to say this so many different ways this weekend that I believe you're going to get it. Praise God. All right, look over in Isaiah chapter 40. This is the the passage of Scripture that John used when he was questioned. And they said, who are you? Are you the Christ? And he said, no, I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness. And so that's right here in Psalms chapter 40. I mean, it, not Psalms, Isaiah chapter 40. But look here in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1. It says, Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith your God. This is God speaking to John the Baptist. This was supposed to be His message that He was proclaiming. And in verse 2, here's what He was supposed to say. Speak ye com- comfortably... To Jerusalem and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she hath received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now, let me just tell you that even though the nation of Israel suffered and that they were led into captivity, I do not believe that you can say that any amount of physical suffering, losing your nation, going into captivity, the terrible things that happened with that, that cannot pay for all of the sins of that nation. I do not believe that you in the natural can pay for spiritual transgressions and things like that. Now, I haven't got time to expand on that a lot, but you know, some people look at hell and they think that hell is such a terrible concept. How could a loving God ever send anybody to hell? And let me just say this, for anybody who's ever thought that, if you're still thinking that, you do not have a revelation on what sin is all about. Sin is such a transgression against God. Sin is such a terrible thing that I guarantee you eternity in a place of torment is never going to pay for the sins that people have committed. Sin is a terrible thing. And I don't know how to get that across to anybody. But you know, I I know personally that when I saw the Lord for the real first time, I was born again when I was eight, but when I was 18, God revealed Himself to me and instantly in comparison to His holiness and His purity, I saw my relative unholiness and unworthiness And I was a good person by, you know, religion standards. I've never said a word of profanity in all my nearly 57 years now. I've never taken a drink of liquor. I've never smoked a cigarette. I've never tasted coffee. It's true. I've never tasted coffee. And I know some of you think, coffee? Are you saying that coffee and booze are the same thing? No, no. Mark chapter 16 says you can drink any deadly thing and it shall not harm you. Amen. So you got a scripture to stand on for drinking coffee. I'm just saying I have lived a super holy life. But you know what? When I saw the glory of God, even though I was holier than most people by man's standards, I guarantee you, I saw my relative unworthiness and I knew in my heart that I deserved to be destroyed Every person that has ever seen the glory of God, you go through Isaiah chapter 6 when he saw the Lord high and lifted up, he fell on his face and he says, My God, I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. You go through any person that's ever seen the glory of God and I guarantee you they expected to be destroyed. Because that is justice. That's what we deserve. So anybody who thinks that hell is a terrible concept, I just can't believe a loving God would ever send some person there. Well, you haven't, one thing, seen the holiness, the purity of God. You have never seen the total transgression and the mess of things that man has made. Man, I could go on about this for a long time. But I can guarantee you this world, the terrible things that go on, even among quote-unquote good people, the hurt and the pain, and all of the things that we've done to transgress against God. I guarantee you, you can't pay for the transgression that your sins have made in just this physical life. So I say all of these things to say that when it says, Tell Jerusalem that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is a pardon, for she hath received of the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. That isn't talking about that in the natural she had suffered enough that now God says that the war is over. This is talking about that war from God towards mankind for their sins. And this was a prophetic scripture talking about the Lord Jesus and saying that when the Messiah comes, He is going to bear your sins. The warfare will be over because your sins have been paid for. You've received double. The Lord put twice as much wrath upon His Son, the Lord Jesus, as the entire human race was worthy of receiving. Jesus bore our sins and the warfare is over. And if you continued on down through Isaiah chapter 40, the whole thing is all talking about Jesus. It's prophetic about what Jesus would accomplish when He came. And this is saying that John the Baptist was to proclaim to the people that the wrath of God had now been satisfied. The war was over. God's not angry at you anymore. Sin is not an issue. Jesus has paid for your sins. That's what all this was about. Go over to Isaiah chapter 52 and 53. And if I had time to read all of these verses, did you know that starting with Isaiah chapter 40 and just continuing on through, these are all prophetic about the Lord Jesus. They are scriptures that John the Baptist quoted and made clear that he understood that this was God's instructions to him. And in Isaiah chapter 52, in verse 13, it says, Behold, my servants shall deal prudently he shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. As many were astonished at thee, his visage was so marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of man. The word visage, if you study that out, literally is talking about face. It's talking about your face. His face was marred more than any man. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about this or if any of you have ever been exposed to things, but think about this. More than any man that has ever lived on the face of the earth, Jesus' face was marred more than any person that's ever lived. I had a man come to one of my meetings in Kansas City that had a cancer all over his face. His whole face was a cancer. I had a man come to my meeting, I think it was in Kansas City, that he had lost his nose, had been eaten away by cancer, and he had a big towel over his face, and finally he wanted me to pray, and I said, well, what am I praying for? And he took it away, and you could see right up inside of his face. His nose was gone. And this scripture says that Jesus was more marred than that. And it goes on to say in that same verse, that his form more than the sons of men. That means if you study all this out in the Hebrew, that Jesus didn't even look human. Now, how could this happen? You know, that show, The Passion of the Christ, portrayed the beating that Jesus received, and people uh, screamed about that, about how um, you know, uh, vivid that was or how graphic it was and how that they thought Mel Gibson went over the top. Mel Gibson said himself that he had to tone it down from what the scriptures describe because it could, nobody would have ever viewed it. And according to what these scriptures are saying, did you know Jesus, his face looked worse than any person that has ever walked on the face of the earth. His body was so marred that it didn't even look human. It didn't look recognizable as a human form. And I don't care what kind of beating you give a person. I can't understand how any physical beating with just a cat of nine tails could accomplish that. What I personally believe based on Isaiah chapter 53 and other passages is it says his, He took our sins into His own body on the tree. 1 uh, Peter chapter 2 verse 24 says that. It also says that he, by His stripes we were healed. Isaiah chapter 53 verse 5. And I believe that the sickness... And the disease of all of the human race, every deformity, every tumor, every perversion, every person that's ever been crippled, deformed, anything that ever happened to the human race all entered into the physical body of the Lord Jesus so that his face looked worse than any person who has ever lived on the face of the earth and his form became so distorted he didn't look human. God did that to His Son. It wasn't just the physical beating. That show the passion of the Christ only showed the physical things. They couldn't depict the suffering that went on. When Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, the agony that came upon Him thinking about becoming sin, the very thing that He hated, the very thing that He came to set us free from, He had to become that sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. The spiritual, the emotional suffering that Jesus went through I don't know if you understand what I'm saying, but our religious system, in a sense, has diminished the atonement of the Lord Jesus to say that He paid a price. But even if you're born again, and even if you've made Jesus your Lord, every time you sin, God is still angry at you. God is still upset. God won't answer your prayer if there's any unforgiven sin, unconfessed sin in your life. And basically, we have just made Jesus a part of the solution, but not the total solution. We've said that you have to have, yes, the atonement of Jesus, but you also have to repent and you have to feel terrible over your sin and grovel in the dirt and do all of these things. I'm telling you that a person who's saying things like that does not understand the totality of the price that Jesus paid for us. Jesus paid for our sins so much. When He hung on that cross, He said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A quotation from Psalms chapter 22. And God, the Father, literally, He put all of this sickness, all of the sin, all of the suffering of the world upon His Son, but then He turned around and forsook Him. God forsook His only Son because that was the price that you and I deserved. And again, I could stay on this for a long period of time. But I've had just a tiny glimpse by the Spirit of God what it's like not to have God in the world, to be God forsaken. And I tell you what, that's going to be hell. Hell is going to be suffering in flames. There's going to be physical things. We'll you know, just like in the parable that Jesus gave about, you know, have Lazarus come dip his finger in water and cool my tongue. There's going to be physical emotional torment but the worst part of hell is going to be that there is nothing good everything good everything god is gone nothing but darkness nothing but hatred and strife nothing good some of us think we live in a bad world and there's plenty of corruption in our world but we don't even have a clue there is still so much good that is here There are still people who are going out of their way to make this world a better place and to do things. As bad as things are, it is nothing like what it's going to be in hell where there is no God in this world. There is no hope. There is nothing. Total separation from God is going to be hell in itself, whether there was any physical suffering or not. And Jesus bore that. Jesus was forsaken by His Father. His Father forsook His own Son And totally rejected Him so that you and I wouldn't be rejected. So that we would never be forsaken. And to say that Jesus only paid for that up to a point and when you sin that God is still upset and God still turns away from you and God won't answer your prayer because you've got some sin in your life. People think that I'm making light of sin. I'm saying that they are making light of the sacrifice that Jesus paid. Jesus paid such a great, awesome price for us that it forever satisfied the wrath of God and God isn't angry at you regardless of what you've done. Man, that is good news. He goes on to say... In chapter 53, verse 1, "...who hath believed I report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed?" In other words, this is nearly too good to be true news. Who would believe this? Who can believe that God isn't angry at them anymore? And He's not going to be angry at you. That all of your sins, past, present, and even future tense sins have been paid for. Man, there's not everybody that believes this report. In verse 2, it says, For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Did you know Jesus wasn't one of these beautiful people? I don't believe he was necessarily ugly. I just don't believe he was special. Jesus wasn't one of these people that everybody wants to be close to and get their attention and wants to be seen with Him. Jesus was just plain. Jesus was ordinary. When you saw, if you were to see Jesus, you would not be impressed with Jesus. Now we would now that He's glorified, but I'm saying when He walked on this physical earth, there was nothing special about Him. Sometimes people say, Oh, I wish I could have been a disciple of Jesus. Wouldn't that have been awesome? It would have been hard hard to believe that this was God. It would have been hard to see a man. You know, he had walked 20 and 30 miles a day in that hot Judean weather. And I guarantee you, he didn't have a holiday in to check into. He didn't take a shower every night before his message. You know what? Jesus stunk. He got dirty. His hair was matted. They didn't carry a whole suitcase and change clothes. He'd wear the same clothes day after day, probably week after week if he's anything like most of the people over there that I've been around. You know what? You could smell him coming. And man, you had to look past all of that. You had to look past the fact that he's not special. There's nothing special about him. Jesus became like we are. We portray him as going around with a halo about his head, but I guarantee you people didn't see a halo about his head. They looked at him and he was just as plain and normal as any one of us. Jesus did that so that those of you who didn't feel special, he felt what you felt. Jesus was looked over. Jesus was passed over and taken for granted And people didn't appreciate him. Any of you that have ever suffered anything, Jesus suffered all of these things for you. In verse 3, he is despised and rejected of man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Jesus didn't have any grief of his own to bear It wasn't anything that he had done that ever caused him misery. He took all of our misery, all of our sorrow, all of our grief upon him. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him and with his stripes we are healed. People try and make this apply only to emotional or spiritual things, but this was quoted again in Matthew chapter 8, verse 17. And over there, after Jesus had healed Peter's mother-in-law and a multitude of people, it says, This was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, He Himself took our infirmities and bear our sicknesses. It's quoted, it's commented on in the New Testament, and this shows you that it's not limited to talking about emotional, spiritual things. Jesus suffered so that we could be healed physically by His stripes. In verse 6, it says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him, on Jesus, the iniquity of us all. Jesus didn't just suffer in principle for sin. It's not like God gave him a tiny taste of sin and he just tasted a little bit of sin for all man. He took all of your iniquity, all of the iniquity of the entire world upon himself. Jesus literally had the ungodliness, the corruption, the perversion of homosexuality, of murder, of bestiality. Every sin that has ever been committed on the face of the earth, that sin entered into the physical flesh of the Lord Jesus. The iniquity of us all was laid upon Him. In verse 7 it says, "...He was oppressed and He was afflicted, yet He opened not His mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is dumb, so He opened not His mouth." He was taken from prison and from judgment. In other words, he never even got a chance to go to prison. He never got a fair trial. He missed all of those things. And who shall declare his generation? He didn't have any physical descendants, regardless of what the Da Vinci Code says. For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. You know, I'm going through a lot of scriptures here. I would really encourage you to go back and meditate on this and let God open this up to you. I've spent hours meditating on these scriptures and I'm just giving you a little cream off the top of this. But think about this. God was pleased to bruise His Son, to hurt His Son, to forsake His Son, To make his son so that he looked worse than any person's face that has ever existed on this earth. To make him suffer so much that he didn't even look human anymore. God was pleased with that. That's not because God is a masochist or because he's a terrible God. It was because he knew that by putting all of your sin upon his son that he would set free all of the human race. He would break Satan's dominion. And the reason it pleased him to do this is because he knew it was going to totally solve the situation. If all this would have been was just a small part of the equation, what it took to set you free, I guarantee you God the Father, I don't believe, would have gone to this much effort. He wouldn't have done this to his own son. The reason it pleased him is because he knew that by Jesus' suffering, he would forever settle this issue, that the war would be over. God's wrath was placed upon his own son. And he did that, and I guarantee you, for God to do that, it totally satisfied his wrath. For you to think that God is still ticked off, upset at you, won't answer your prayers, won't move because you've got some sin in your life, you just don't have a clue what God did to his own son. If somehow or another Jamie and I could take our own children and if you had done something against me, and if I could transfer your sin to my son and punish my son so that I wouldn't be angry at you, I wouldn't do that unless it was sufficient, unless it was more than enough. Why in the world would you make your son suffer if it wasn't going to solve the situation? And yet the church by and large has been saying, oh yes, Jesus died for our sins, but if you got an unconfessed sin in your life, God won't answer your prayer. God can't use a dirty vessel. God can't fellowship with anybody with sin in their life. And on and on and on, they've gone. And they've basically just diminished the sacrifice of Jesus. But it pleased the Father to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, which Galatians chapter 3 says, that we, the believers, are the seed of the Lord Jesus Christ. This isn't talking about just Jews or something like this. This is talking about people who put faith in the Lord Jesus. We are His seed. He shall see His seed. He shall prolong His days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in His hand. It says that He made His soul an offering for sin. Because when He sees the people that He has set free, that that's going to please Him. That's why the Lord did all of this, is because of the benefit that it had to us, the body of Christ. He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. This scripture says that God the Father was satisfied with what Jesus paid for your sins. And you can't satisfy Him anymore. Your repentance, your groveling in the dirt, your feeling unworthy... You're feeling separated from God and all of these other things cannot add anything to the way God the Father views you. He is satisfied with you through Jesus, not through your great goodness. The only thing you have to contribute to this basically is your sin. Sin qualified you. And then God paid the whole price and the only thing you can do is just either believe and receive or doubt and do without. If you have made Jesus your Savior, God is satisfied with your payment, not because you have repented and done all of these things and promised all of this, but because Jesus has borne all of your sin. Man, this is awesome. It says, He shall see the travail of His soul, not the travail of your soul. He saw the travail of Jesus' soul. And he was satisfied by his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many. The word justify, this is an oversimplification, but here's a way to remember it. The word justify means just as if I'd never sinned. I'm justified, just as if I'd never sinned. God saw the travail of Jesus, imputed that unto me as if I had suffered and paid for my own sins throughout all eternity. He's satisfied. The payment's been made. Sin has been paid for and now I am justified through that just as if I'd never sinned. God doesn't see me as a sinner. I am not an old sinner saved by grace. I am now the righteousness of God. Amen. It says, And uh, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. He made me just as if I would never sinned, because all of my sins placed upon him. And now he's got my sin, and I've got his righteousness. Verse 12, Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death, And he was numbered with the transgressors and he bare the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. I'm going to get through this quickly, but let me just go into a few things in chapter 54. Here's the result of all of this. Seeing, O barren, thou that didst not bear. And this isn't talking about just physically unable to have children. This is talking about if it seems like you're spiritually barren. If you can't see victory, you can't see the blessing of God come to pass. It just seems like that. You aren't flowing in the things of God. Because of what Jesus did, recorded in chapter 52 and 53, now we can sing because I'm not going to be barren anymore. I'm going to break forth into singing and cry aloud, thou that didst not travail with child, for more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married wives, saith the Lord. Through the Lord, we can prosper more. We can have more joy, more victory, more power, more success than if you would have had all of these things in the natural. Nobody with just natural ability and talent can even begin to approach unto being as fruitful and successful as a person who is doing it through trusting in the Lord and what He's done for us. In verse 2, Enlarge the place of thy tent, and let them stretch forth the curtains of thine habitation. Spare not, lengthen thy cords, and strengthen thy stakes... For thou shalt break forth on the right hand and on the left, and thy seed shall inherit the Gentiles and make the desolate cities to be inhabited. This is talking about growth, success, prosperity, not only physically but emotionally in every single area. Through Jesus, you you should just be expecting nothing but blessings. Amen. You ought to just be saying that, man, God loves me. How can anybody be against me? Instead of saying nothing ever works for me, it ought to be just the opposite. I am so blessed I can't lose for winning. Amen. If you understood how much God loved you, if you really understood forgiveness, man, I just wish I had more. T- I wish I had enough time to tell you everything I knew. But man, un- I can't understand people being depressed and discouraged. If you knew what Jesus has done for you, your worst day. I don't care if they're gonna. You know, if they're telling you that you're going to die, big deal. It's not a big deal. Because God Almighty loves you and you are going to live forever in eternity with Him. You have missed hell. If worse comes to worse and you die, you go directly to be with the Lord. Amen. We sing about when we all get to heaven, what a day that'll be. And then the doctor tells you you're going and you start crying and falling apart like a $2 suitcase. Man, if you understood that you're forgiven. If we win, we win. If we lose, we win. I can't lose for winning. Man, we are blessed. You go to thinking about things like that, you meditate on this, and I guarantee you it's impossible to be depressed. It's impossible to be fearful. This is the reason that the Apostle Paul, he was just fearless. Because he knew all of these things. He had this revelation. He'd go in and they'd tell him, you quit preaching the gospel or we'll kill you. And he'd just kiss them. Oh man, this is wonderful for me to live as Christ and to die is even better. And they'd say, well, we're going to throw you in jail. So they put him in stocks and he just goes to worshiping God. God got to listening to him sing, patting his foot and all of the jail cells opened up and the chains fell off and he didn't even leave. Because he wasn't just praising God so that he could get out of trouble. he was. This is a novel thought. He really was praising God. It didn't matter if he's got his back beaten in the stocks. He didn't care because God loved him. He was forgiven. He had been persecuting Christians, killing Christians, and God made him just as if he had never sinned. And he was so thankful for it that just stick him in the stocks, great. Now I don't have to worry about what my next sermon is. I can just praise God, amen, all night long. Get the jailers safe. So they kick him out and they say, you can't stay in jail anymore. You're getting all the prisoners converted. So they, st- you know, it didn't matter. Tell him you're going to kill him. He loved it. Persecute him, stick him in the stocks. He loved it. Brothers and sisters, I tell you what. Uh, the brand of Christianity that we have today, if you don't have a brand new car... You go to whining and griping and complaining and nothing ever works for me and stuff like that. You know what? Very few Christians really have understood what we deserve just on our own. And they haven't understood what a great price Jesus paid for us. If you knew that, you got no reason to gripe or complain about anything. So what if your husband or wife left you? God said He'd never leave you nor forsake you. You ought to be rejoicing over that. If nothing else, stand on that scripture that says in heaven, they neither marry nor are given in marriage and say, thank you, Jesus. It's only temporary, amen. You had not got a right to be griping or complaining about anything. God Almighty loves you. He's taken your sins. The war is over. Glory to God in the highest. Peace on earth. Goodwill towards men. You ought to be planning to break forth on the right and on the left. Enlarge your tent. Because, man, you are going to prosper, prosper, prosper. God Almighty is for you. Who can successfully be against you? I'm going to have to jump on down, but look at this in verse 11. It says, "...O thou afflicted, and tossed with tempest, and not comforted! Behold, I will lay thy stones with fair colors, and thy foundations with sapphires, and I will make thy windows of agates, and gates of carbuncles, and all thy borders of pleasant stones." And all thy children shall be taught of the Lord, and great shall be the peace of thy children. In righteousness shalt thou be established. Man, I could preach on that for an hour. You know why most of us aren't established? Because we don't understand that we're righteous. We think we're unrighteous. We are having sin imputed unto us because we haven't heard the true gospel And therefore, we think that we're so unworthy. And that's the reason you aren't established, strong, steady, because we are still thinking God is imputing sin unto us. But in righteousness shalt thou be established. Thou shalt be far from oppression. If you are oppressed, you know why? Because you don't know you're righteous. You don't understand that your sins are forgiven. You may use that terminology, but we say our sins are forgiven. And then in the next breath, I know why God didn't answer my prayer, because I've got a sin that I just haven't been able to overcome. You don't believe your sins are forgiven if you're still saying that. You would be far from oppression if you understood righteousness, for thou shalt not fear. You wouldn't have fear if you understood righteousness. What can you fear if God's for you? And from terror, for it shall not come near thee. Behold, they shall surely gather together, but not by me. Whosoever shall gather together against thee shall fall for... Thy sake. Behold, I have created... You know what? I missed the verse I was going for. But those are great verses. I got a little carried away. I'm going to have to back up. Let's go back up into verse 9. And I'll end with this. It says, For this is as the waters of Noah unto me. For as I have sworn that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so have I sworn that I would not be wroth with thee nor rebuke thee. God swore by himself. And it doesn't matter what you do. It's going to come to pass. But this is talking about the covenant that was made with Noah. The covenant that was made with Noah, there weren't any qualifications. It didn't say, if people never provoke me again, if they never get back to the degree of unworthiness and ungodliness that they were during the flood, then I'll never destroy the earth with a flood. That's not the kind of covenant it was. Noah's covenant was an unconditional covenant. No strings attached. It is just a promise that I don't care what the world does, God will never destroy the earth with a flood again. And he's saying that this new covenant that Jesus is putting into effect is like that Noah covenant. It is an unconditional, unqualified covenant because in the same way that he swore that he would never again destroy the earth with a flood, so have I sworn that I would not be wroth with thee nor rebuke you. God, for those who enter into this covenant, God is never, ever, ever angry at you. God has never, ever, ever rebuked you. Now, the Lord will show you when you do something wrong, not because it's not paid for. He's already paid for your sins. But he also knows that when you yield to sin, you are opening up a door to the devil. And I guarantee you, if you do that, the devil will come in and eat your lunch and pop the bag. Amen. (laughs) And so, out of love, he'll tell you, don't do that. Not because he's going to impute it unto you or hold back his blessings, but he doesn't want Satan to have an inroad into your life. So he will tell you things and say, quit doing this, but the guilt, the condemnation, the unworthiness, you feeling that God is angry with you, that God has forsaken you, that God has put you on a shelf. How could God use you? That is not coming from God. That is religion condemning you. It's your own conscience condemning you. God is not the author of condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. God is not angry at you. He has sworn an unconditional covenant regardless of what you do. God is not angry at you. He is never going to rebuke you. All of those times that you've heard people stand up and say, Oh, I did something wrong and God has just been on my case. God has been telling me all this stuff. That is not true. The Holy Spirit, He may have shown them that they were wrong, but it's their own conscience that's condemning them and destroying them. God is not the one that's making you feel miserable. Those times that you said, well, I sinned against God and God has left me. It's not God that's left you. It's your own conscience that condemned you and cut you off. All of those times that you sang David's prayer out of Psalms chapter 51, Restore unto me the joy of my salvation and take not your Holy Spirit away from me. Create in me a clean heart, oh God. It's a wrong prayer. David prayed it because he was an Old Testament saint. But in the New Testament, he has created in me a clean heart. He said he would never leave me nor forsake me. And every time you feel like the God just got so ticked off, he left, you're wrong. Anybody miss that? Was that too subtle? And look at this in verse 10. It says, for the mountains shall depart. "...and the hills be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from thee, neither shall the covenant of my peace be removed." That brings us back to Luke chapter 2, verse 14. Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace, goodwill. God is now at peace with mankind. The war is over. He has made a covenant. He has signed a treaty. He will never be angry at us nor rebuke us again. And you know what, over in Ephesians chapter 6, it says that we are supposed to be covered with the armor of God and part of that armor is having our feet shod with the gospel of peace. If we aren't preaching the peace of God, if we are saying, no, there's war, God's angry and God's upset, if you don't repent, God won't bless you, God won't move in your life, that is not the gospel of peace. And that's the reason that people aren't responding better is because they haven't heard the true gospel. They aren't hearing the same message that Jesus had. Jesus wasn't imputing people's sins unto them because He had read these scriptures. He knew what was happening. He knew that He was the Lamb of God that was going to pay and He was going to bear the sins of the whole world. And because of that, He was able to turn around and extend mercy towards sinners. Brothers and sisters, we've allowed things to blind us to the fact that Jesus has paid for all sin. Not only for the sins of believers, but also for the sins of the whole world. 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. Everybody's sins are paid for. Sin's not the issue. People aren't going to hell because of their sin. Sin has been paid for. People are going to hell because they don't know Jesus they haven't made Jesus their personal Lord. They haven't accepted Him. You know, there may be some people here tonight that you are still trying to pay for your sins. You're trying to do penance. I've actually met people before with scars on their hands, elbows, and knees because they this one guy crawled over glass for three miles doing penance. I met another man who was actually crucified and allowed himself to be crucified during the Lent season because he thought that would help atone for his sins. You know what that is? That is an affront against God. That's saying that Jesus didn't pay it all and that I still have to do something. Jesus was crucified so that I don't have to be crucified. Now most of us wouldn't be crucified, but you know what? Many of us will still be separated from God, go through a week of miserableness because we feel like that we have to do that to have God accept us. That's the exact same mindset. It's just a different standard. It's just a different set of repentance. But there may be some people here that think that by going to church, by trying to be good, you may have come here tonight thinking that you're appeasing God. Maybe you're appeasing your wife or your friend and you thought that this would get them off of your case. But you've never trusted Jesus personally. You haven't received this. You're still trying to somehow or another, barter with God and turn in your good works, hoping that that will be enough for you to be saved. You can't do enough. There is nothing you can offer that will ever supersede what Jesus has done. Jesus did it for you. And Jesus plus nothing equals everything. But Jesus plus anything, especially your own effort, equals nothing. You either have to trust Jesus 100% or trust yourself, but no combination of the two. You either have a Savior who earned you salvation by what He did or you are going to have to earn salvation on your own merit, which cannot be done. If there's anybody here tonight who has never made Jesus your Lord, you need to humble yourself and make Jesus your personal Lord and receive this. He paid for your sins and the only thing that will send you to hell is if you don't accept His payment and you try and pay for your own sins, You need to make Jesus your personal Lord. So before we minister to anybody else about anything, you need to make sure Jesus is your personal Lord. It would be a shame for you to hear this message and go to hell. Man, this is good news. You have heard the gospel tonight and if you would receive it, you can be born again. So I want to give you an opportunity. If there's anybody here who is not truly born again, you haven't put your faith in...